Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host. I'm usually transmitting from London, but today I am in Paris. And uh, as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the Do One Better podcast is to inspire our audience to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick off, if you're able to subscribe by pressing that little button on your iPhone or Android, that would be very much appreciated. And today, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome on board to the podcast Chris Trott, who is someone I've known for quite a few years. He is going to be taking on an ambassadorship in South Sudan. So he's the British ambassador designate to South Sudan. And he and I met when he was the council general in Cape Town in South Africa quite a few years back. And uh, in between that, he's held various other roles. But more recently, he was the uh, UK special envoy for Sudan and South Sudan, I think over the last uh, three years or so. He's someone who's very engaging politically, but also in terms of his personality and the sort of roles that he takes on board. So in the podcast today, we're not just going to talk about South Sudan, conflict, mediation, but also we're going to talk a little bit about his career and career trajectory and what draws him to these interesting and often precarious settings uh, in the front lines. What draws him to these roles and how does he cope with it? Because he's a family man, happily married, has kids. And so there might be listeners out there who are interested in doing interesting work in the front lines and are not quite sure about how to handle that. So we're going to touch on that a little bit as well. And Chris, welcome on board. It's an absolute pleasure to have you today. Thank you very much indeed. And I'm looking forward to our conversation, Alberto. Great, great. So tell me, you are in South Sudan right now. Are you in Juba, the capital? Yes, I'm sitting in Juba. Wonderful. And when are you due to become formally uh, the British ambassador out there? It's quite a complicated process. Basically, what it requires is me to be able to uh, get access to a little bit of the president's diary um, so that I can go and present myself to him. And once I've presented myself to him, then I'm a fully fledged ambassador. Aha. Uh -huh. Very good. So one of the things that you told me before we clicked the record button was that um, you're out there in your house and you said, I have quite a bit of time because I can't leave my house until 7 a.m. in the morning. Um, what's the deal with that? Is it a security situation? You just can't go out of your house for a while? or Basically, um, I think for anyone that is living or working in Juba, you have to exercise a degree of caution. Um, there is has been a significant drop in the levels of conflict in this country over the last couple of years since the or the last year since the signing of the peace agreement. But there is still a lot of uh, particularly um, criminality, armed criminality. Uh, and so the recommendation for most of the international staff working here is that during the hours of daylight, traveling around Juba is fine, but during the evenings, the recommendation that I put on my own travel uh, website in terms of the Foreign Office's travel advice, um, I have to also follow, and that is that we all stay within our compounds overnight from seven till seven. Fair enough. That sounds perfectly sensible. So tell me a little bit about your, um, your career. How did you end up where you are today? 
So it's been a sort of slightly long and winding path, but basically I've, I've been a British diplomat for nearly 30 years. Um, I started out as a Southeast Asian specialist and did my first job in Burma in the early 90s um, and spent actually a decade in East Asia, um, culminating in a brief period in Afghanistan shortly after the uh, fall of the Taliban in 2002, um, which really opened my eyes to what sometimes gets called expeditionary diplomacy. I think that's what you were referring to in the bit you did to introduce me just now. Um, I, Having done that, I went back to London. And one of the things that has always motivated me is the issue of human rights. And I worked on human rights for a bit, but then I got sucked into discussions about how the international community responds to conflict, both to an ongoing conflict and also in terms of trying to rebuild a society or a, a country in a post-conflict scenario. Um, and having done that, the obvious thing then was to look to engage in some of that in real life. And I went to Senegal, which is obviously a very stable West African country, but with responsibility also as ambassador to Mali and Guinea-Bissau, um, and there I was, I was given a sort of flavour of how international communities are come, groups are coming together to address the issue, particularly in Guinea-Bissau, of conflict. And I've basically spent the last 12 years of my life, apart from the four years during which time we met in Cape Town, I've, I've been focused very much on issues of conflict, conflict resolution, reconstruction, I did a posting as the British ambassador or rather high commissioner as its Commonwealth country uh, in the Solomon Islands. And many of your listeners will probably know that the Solomon Islands too saw a conflict in the late 1990s and was still recovering when I was posted there. And for the last four years, I've been focused on conflict in East Africa, specifically on the Sudans. The, um, the posting to Afghanistan I think our listeners will find it interesting. I remember you and I having a conversation and you told me how that came about, that you were around a proverbial water cooler in an office in some other yes. country where you were posted. And somebody, you overheard or somebody overheard that there's this possibility, this opportunity for anybody who wishes to volunteer to go to Afghanistan after the Taliban, that they can go ahead and raise their hand and, and put their name forward. And your colleagues were making light of that and joking, you know, as to who would be crazy enough to do that, not knowing that you had just done that. So that's that's sort of more or less exactly right. You have an excellent memory. I, <laughs> you know, when when uh, after 9-11 and the, the sort of the refocusing on Afghanistan took place and 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 the Taliban fell, uh, we had not had um, a presence in Kabul for over a decade. Uh, and, you know, obviously our systems are designed to plan quite a long time in advance for overseas postings because the expectation is that you will go with your family, ideally. You have to therefore plan. You might have to learn a language. But all of a sudden, from zero, uh, we needed to stand up a, a mission, an embassy in Kabul. So they sent a message round by email saying, who wants to volunteer for this? And and obviously I checked with my wife, but but and, and she said, yeah, right. Um, you know, she knew that I needed to do it. 
and I sent in my yes me uh, email and then during the course of the morning exactly round the water cooler uh, many of my colleagues were speculating as to who would be crazy enough to leave the safety and the comfort of Tokyo and go to Afghanistan and I'm afraid my my approach was who would be crazy enough not to want to do that well, that's a good way of looking at it. Your wife must be very understanding, first of all. Very long-suffering. How do you cope with that dynamic at home? And, and what, do you, what do you advise listeners who might be in a similar situation, who, who are really drawn to, to, to work in the front lines, but it's, you know, it could have safety issues. It's not, uh, it's not uh, the comforts yes. of London. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've sort of been in and out of Baghdad. I've been in Kabul. I, I went to Beirut in 2006 during a period of real tension. Um, I think that uh, it might, I, I'm not sure you can give general advice. I mean, my, my wife understands that I am at my most effective when I am passionate about what I'm doing and also understands that I really am motivated by wanting to make a difference in in a conflict environment. Um, and she recognizes the risks that come with that. I wonder to the extent to which she uh, spends time thinking about them. I think one of her coping mechanisms is probably not to think too hard about the risk. Um, but, you know, she can see that this is something that really matters to me and recognizes that that then helps us as a couple to have me fully fulfilled. It obviously puts a lot of pressure on her. Um, when I went to Kabul, we didn't have children. We do now. And, you know, I am therefore sort of almost deserting her as a single parent in London while I, I sort of gallivant around East Africa. Um, but I think the, the key thing is that she understands that if, if, there was a need for me to stop doing what I'm doing, I would stop. Um, but for the moment, she recognizes this is what really, um, you know, really motivates me and really brings out the best of me, I think. Fair enough, fair enough. These are not really family postings anyways, right? I mean, you can't just pick up and take a whole family to South Sudan. No, I mean, I'm, I'm not allowed to bring any, uh, either spouse or children to South Sudan. All of, all of my team, which is quite big, all of the international staff in the British Embassy here are on, uh, on their own. Many of my colleagues have children back at home. I, I'm hugely, I hugely admire my colleagues here in the Embassy because all of us are motivated about the difference that we can make in a really tough environment. And, you know, you think, oh, yes, it's tough for me. Um, you know, my family aren't here. But actually, for South Sudanese, they have lived through conflict since 1955. Um, and so, you know, it then becomes rather humbling. And you have to think, actually, it might be a bit tough for me, but I can always go home. Um, I live in a sort of protected compound and I, I get to fly out every now and then to see my family. You know, for people in South Sudan whose families have suffered for decades, they don't have that option. They keep going. And it's, it's sort of our responsibility, I guess, to join them in trying to give 
younger generations of South Sudanese a hope that their future is going to be different from their past. What's the state of affairs in the South Sudan? Tell me a little bit about the, the layout of the land over there. I'm happy to. I will try not to give you it in too much detail. One of the things I learned when I took over this job is that that often when you talk to either Sudanese or South Sudanese, they feel that you need to understand the last 40 years of history if you're going to engage on today. Um, and there is always a tendency for the first hour of a meeting to be about the history. And I won't do that to you. Um, but I mean, as your lead listeners will know, South Sudan became independent after a long conflict uh, with the North, with Khartoum in 2011. Um, and for the first couple of years, there was a significant amount of optimism about the world's new estate um, because South Sudan did have resources. It had oil revenue, which meant that you weren't dealing with trying to create a state in an absolute vacuum. But what you were dealing with was trying to create a brand new state. Unfortunately, uh, the sort of the, the classic story of resource curse slightly played into the, the, the politics of South Sudan. And you quickly had a falling out amongst some of the, the factions of the government over the use of resources, over access to power. And you ended up with a civil war that started in 2013. That conflict, which sort of lasted on and off from 2013 until the latter half of last year, led to probably almost 400,000 people being killed. It's led to famine in a place that's considered to be the breadbasket of East Africa with massive potential, because not only do they have their oil revenue, but actually we're living in an equatorial region that's well watered, that's very fertile. And that did, during periods of history, feed much of the rest of West Africa. Um, but unfortunately, the conflict dislodged significant percentage of the population. So you could probably estimate that maybe almost half the population, maybe 40% maybe of the population are either IDPs or refugees. And the, the assessments that are done by the international community on food security suggest that significant numbers of those, even those that have stayed put or have not sought refuge in camps, are suffering from what is what is a very high level of food insecurity and famine-like conditions. Um, what we've been trying to do, and what I was trying to do in my last job in particular, was to trying to bring the political elite back together to agree on a process that would allow the, the dividend of the peace following the 40 years of civil war with Khartoum to be felt by the people. And a peace treaty was signed last September um, that has created a platform on which we are seeking to build peace and on which, more significantly, the parties to the conflict are seeking to build peace. So we're in a little bit of a limbo at the moment. The transition government that was supposed to come out of the peace process was supposed to be created in May, but the preconditions to that hadn't been met. We are hoping that the preconditions to that will be met by November and that we should have a transitional government for a three-year period leading into some kind of democratic process that allows South Sudanese to choose their leaders and the direction for this country. Now, this, um, this agreement for, from September of last year, that's not the first 
power sharing agreement, if I'm not mistaken, you had something in 2015 as well, right? Yes. I mean, some some of the experts will tell you there have been seven or nine power sharing agreements since 2013. But the most significant was a 2015 agreement that was brokered by the regional organization IGAD, which is the Intergovernmental uh, Authority on Development. It was set up as a way of the states parleying primarily on development, but has become a tool for them to use on on addressing conflict as well in the region. So that was signed in 2015. And what happened in 2018 was that they they revitalized the agreement. What exactly revitalized means no one's tried to define because that could cause the whole thing to fall apart again. Well, now I'm being slightly flippant, but but you know it it is a, a refresh of the agreement in 2015. So it's um, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a fragile situation, and it's uh, it needs a bit of TLC because otherwise we could find ourselves in need of yet another agreement in two years' time. Yeah, th- I think that's right. I think though that what we felt gave it the a, a sort of better chance than perhaps the 2015 one was that in 2018, the process included a far more, it took a far more inclusive approach. So civil society, the churches, religious leaders, eminent personalities there, and a wide range of political parties and military actors were involved in the negotiation. Whereas 2015, it was felt it overly focused on two particular political leaders. So there's a, there was a sense in 2018 that this agreement was more inclusive, it was giving more people an opportunity to engage, and there was wider buy-in from the region, which I think meant that we hoped that the pressure would be kept on the parties to stick to the agreement that they had reached. How does one overcome intransigence? How do you bring people to the table, to the negotiating table, who are for years or decades or even longer um, have a state of acrimony, uh, who, who don't trust each other, who don't see eye to eye, who have preconditions, who have misconceptions about the other. Yeah. How, do you, how do you cajole people? How do you get them around the table? How do you get them to start talking and, and even have some trust in order to come to an agreement? It's, it's really hard, and I'm not sure that we started with trust. I mean, I think what we did, and this is sort of referring back to my time as envoy, I was working in support of the regional mediation. So I was talking to all the parties, I was talking to the region, the mediators, and then engaging third parties as and when it was appropriate or trying to ensure that the international community writ large rather than those that were specifically uh, focused. And there has been a tradition, sorry, if I'm waffling a little bit, but there's been a tradition that, that particularly Norway, the US and the UK have sort of overseen the peace processes that have been run in Sudan, starting with the comprehensive peace agreement between Khartoum and Juba in 2005 that led to independence. So we've tended to be more engaged in the mediation, but obviously you want to then build in the engagement of the wider region, places like Egypt that have an important role to play, and then the international community, whether it's donors like Japan or the EU or EU member states, or it's 
or it's the Chinese who have invested traditionally in this country to try and bring everyone to push in the same direction. That was the, the first key task to ensure that all the parties got the same message from the international community. And then you have to have a fairly honest conversation about the levers, the sort of the carrots and the sticks in the negotiation. Are there things that you could do as the international community that could encourage the participants to work towards peace? And at the same time, you have to have a frank conversation about is there a way that you can sanction spoilers? Um, and we have taken the approach that you know, using as a last resort the, uh, the, the mechanisms of the United Nations or the European Union to sanction particular individuals, to try and encourage others to take a more inclusive approach or to, to, to in a way, to penalise particularly egregious violations of international humanitarian law or human rights, um, means that you then sort of coax the parties towards a kind of conclusion. But, but you know, you have, the parties have to want it. They have to understand that the people of South Sudan, and they did understand that the people of South Sudan really wanted it. And I think that was quite striking after the agreement was signed in September, because many of the opposition leaders had not been in Juba for four or five years during the conflict. Um, and they were all very struck when, as a result of the peace agreement, they came back to Juba that they realized how tired of conflict ordinary, I hate the word, but ordinary South Sudanese were feeling. And they started to feel a sense of responsibility, which they might not have felt during the negotiations, but a sense of responsibility once they came back here to actually ensure that the agreement is implemented. The challenge now is that the agreement is 120 pages long. There are contradictions in it. Um, and, and what we need to do is to ensure that the spirit of the agreement, rather than every single letter of the agreement, is the platform on which we help the parties build peace. The degree of suffering in that country, you mentioned earlier, 400,000 or so individuals killed in this um Yep. in this conflict. It's a small population overall, right? I mean, that's a very high relative number. The, the overall population of South Sudan is, what, 12 million? There sort of hasn't been a census for a long time. I think 12 million was the census in 2005, and that was probably high. So you're, you're probably talking 10, 11 million, of whom 2.2 million are living outside the country in refugee camps in in Uganda, in Kenya, in Ethiopia, and as refugees in Sudan. Even refugees even go from here to the Congo and to the Central African Republic, as well as some further afield, but most of them regionally, uh, are regionally based. And then you probably have another four or 500,000 living in camps inside the country. You mentioned just to, to help me visualize what things were like. You said in the entire country, there are just how many paved roads or it's a very short distance of paved roads? It's probably around 200 kilometers, 200 kilometers of paved roads in a country the size of uh, at least the size of Germany, maybe even Germany and France together. I mean, it's an enormous country. Um, much of it is, is, is in the wet season is swamp. I mean, this is, 
there is a sort of an almost an inland delta. We're on the the route of the Nile as it leaves Lake Victoria and goes up towards Khartoum, where it joins with the other branch. This is the White Nile. But here, the Nile fans out across much of the countryside of, of central South Sudan, which makes it, un- I mean, it's not got, a, it's very sparsely populated. If we're looking at the sustainable development goals, I imagine this pretty much just on every front, there's there's something in a terrible state that could be addressed in, in South Sudan. Yeah, and the, the statistics... The statistics on that, I mean, I don't, are, are horrifying. So, um, you know, one of the things that my my colleagues in DFID are very focused on is girls' education, um, because a girl is more likely to die in childbirth than complete secondary school education, which demonstrates not only how bad the education system is or how much help it needs, but also the the real risks in maternal and child mortality. And it's probably got one of the highest maternal and child mortality rates in the world. Uh, And so the international community is investing both in the education system and in more or less uh, running the the health system. Um, So I spent this evening, early part of this evening, uh, talking to the team who run something called the Health Pool Fund, and that's the international community running and supporting with medicine 800 clinics across the country. And, and they have provided over a million hospital or doctor consultations across the country. It's, it's really, really important um, that we focus on the, the sustainable development goals because the, they are a long way from achieving them here. And for those people fortunate enough to see their fifth birthday and beyond, or for those mothers who are able to have a child and not perish in the process, there's still all sorts of things going on anyway, right? Malnutrition, violence, stunting. Yeah, and 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 one of the really sad things in this country is that you've seen very high rates of, of sexual violence in conflict. Um, and that's something else that we're trying to shine a spotlight on, trying to encourage people to talk about. Um, and that, you know, has long-term implications because then there's the stigma that victims feel, um, which makes it harder for them to marry, harder for them to re-establish family life. Um, so, you know, it, it, it has a real impact on the lives of absolutely everyone in this country, which is why, you know, earlier I said, you know, I, I do, it is considered a hard place to live for a British diplomat or for an international NGO worker, but that's nothing compared to what what your average South Sudanese is going through. For those listeners who who are interested in the topic, who are uh, who are actively involved, uh, perhaps they're running a foundation or they work for an international NGO. Uh, what is the the route through which, if they're interested, they could start helping out in South Sudan? Because I imagine it's not desirable to have somebody go in single-handedly and try to fix something that they think is the right thing to fix. Perhaps it's sensible to, to talk no, to the right... I mean, you yeah. know, any of, any of your listeners with British passports, um, please don't come here because our advice, advice is against all travel to South Sudan. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, I mean, while, while uh, individuals doing their thing can make a difference 
at a at a local level, which is hugely important. The scale of the problem here is so vast that you've got very the, a, a whole range of international organisations and NGOs working here and providing support to them uh, is is probably the most effective way because that then can get translated into activity, coordinated activity on the ground. I mean, one of the things that's worrying us and taking up a lot of our time at the moment is the issue of Ebola. Um, and obviously you, you're aware of the Ebola outbreak in Congo. The, the closest that's come to South Sudan is 70 kilometers away. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to help ensure that, that the South Sudanese system and the people on the ground on the border are as prepared as you can be for uh, Ebola coming into this country. And this is something that is absolutely critical. I'm told that the best way to fight Ebola is to be 100% prepared. Um, and so encouraging your governments, encouraging international organizations to be investing in Ebola preparedness is probably one of the most critical challenges that we face today in in South Sudan. Besides having a, a, a dysfunctional reality or a dystopia, if on top of that you have Ebola showing up, then... Yes, and, you know, I mean, in, in some, some parts, some countries in the region, like Rwanda, for example, you can have a reasonable conf confidence that if it spreads there, there will be a, an appropriate response and it'll be coordinated and, and coherent. I mean, here... You know, what you have is Ebola combined with the risk of conflict uh, and the risk of sort of over-securitizing the, the response to Ebola, which then exacerbates conflict or restarts conflict. And we've seen that to an extent in, in Congo. And we absolutely fear that that is how uh, that would, that would, I mean, I, I think, it would put at risk the peace agreement that I've been talking about us trying to ensure it survives. That would be at risk if Ebola spreads across the border. When you take your post as ambassador in South Sudan, I understand one of the things that you're really craving to do is to travel out and about in the country as much as possible, which is perhaps not something that is traditionally done by the British ambassador or other heads of uh, mission. You know, I'm in I'm in a hugely privileged or or, or lucky position uh, because I can I can open doors, I can communicate messages both inside the country and outside. You know, the 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 position of ambassador gives you an opportunity to make a difference. And what I've been saying to my team and to my 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 our our sort of implementing partners in South Sudan is that I'm kind of a tool of theirs to raise the profile of what they're doing raise the profile of the issues they're addressing i mean so i've just come back from one of the frontline areas um, in in the at the border with congo where you know if Ebola comes to South Sudan, it'll probably come there first. And, you know, I can't go in there and build a hospital or an isolation unit or mount protection equipment. 
But what I can do is I can go there, I can talk to local officials, encourage coordination with the international community. I can come back here and, and be a witness to the preparation and encourage others to get engaged in it. And also through my Twitter feed or through other means of communication like this podcast, I can tell the world about the kind of support that South Sudan needs in addressing its 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 issues, its crises. Um, so, you know, I, I feel that if I'm sitting in Juba and what people here sometimes rather flippantly call the Juba bubble, um, I'm not using my... Uh, my opportunity or not making the most of the opportunity that I have to be to be communicating about what's going on here. Now, I know you're extremely active on social media and there may very well be somebody or quite a few people who are listening to this and think, I'd like to find out a little bit more about the state of affairs in Sudan. I'd like to find out about how we can help or who do we need to speak with so that we can do uh, assistance in a manner that's collaborative and, and complementary to what's going on on the ground. What's what's your Twitter handle? What's the best way of somebody getting a hold of you? So my Twitter handle is at Chris Trot, uh, and yes, I am quite active on Twitter. Not not just on South Sudan. I do try and demonstrate that I'm a whole person. So today I was tweeting about South Sudan and Joe Orton, the British playwright. <laughs> Very good. Well, if they want to contact you about that, I hope you don't find it too intrusive, and that you'll be ha- <laughs> <laughs> you'll be happy to reply. Tell me this posting, it's not a perpetual posting, right? You're going to be there a few years. Where do you see yourself going next? Are you addicted to these sort of um, high-octane sort of roles? I hope not. I mean, you know, I joined, as I said earlier, this 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 organization, Foreign and Commonwealth Office. I, I, I became a diplomat um, as a, a relatively young man, but as a married man, and um my career up until this point has always been something that we have shared. I mean, you don't join an organization like the Foreign Office where your aspiration is to really get under the skin of the country you're living in, to be posted in it, uh, and to have lots of, and you know, to have a network of contacts and friends in it. You, you don't do that on your own. So I have always done that with my wife. Um, and, you know, what I really want to do is to be able to resume my career by going somewhere. And I'd like to be like to be able to follow it up, obviously, with another head of post job. But with my wife uh, and um, if they haven't left home by then, my children. Um, so that, you know, this can be something that when we retire, we can talk about as having experience together. And I think that's going to be very important for me because, you know, I don't want to have five years or 10 years of my life where, you know, my wife hasn't been part of it. Um, And this is the first place I've been other than Afghanistan and Baghdad, where my wife has not at least been able to visit. And my stint in the Solomon Islands was relatively short, but at least she was able to come and join me and to understand the role I was playing and understand the environment in which I was working. No, I understand. And tell me, what is the um, what is what would be the key takeaway for our listeners if they forgot everything that we've just been talking about for the last half hour or so? But one key thing that you think they should really take away from today's podcast, what would that be? I think for me, the important thing to remember is that 
the international community has a hugely significant but supportive role in trying to help address crises around the world. So we need to find ways to offer that support, but in a way that empowers our partners, our local partners, the local governments, others, to address the issues that they are trying to address, but in a way that they want to address them, if that makes sense. It does. Anything else before we wrap up that you wanted to throw into the mix? I, I just I just love I love what you're doing because I think that having these kinds of conversations is so important and and helping people understand that there is something that they can do and that they can they can reach out in a way even if they can't come to a place like South Sudan and make a difference and I think that's that's important and I've enjoyed our conversation as always as always indeed and that's absolutely right I mean I always say this at the start and at the end of every podcast episode that we are about getting people to be more philanthropic and act more sustainably and embrace social entrepreneurship. But that's not just three talking points, that's reality. Um, so wherever you might be listening to this podcast yeah. today, whether you're in Argentina or South Africa or Japan or some other place, um, maybe there is something that you listen to here and you think, wow, that sparks an idea. And if it does, do something about it. Don't just let it percolate in your head, but do something about it. Everybody listening, subscribe to this podcast. It makes a big difference in terms of our rankings and helps others find the show. And Chris, once again, a heartfelt thank you uh, for joining us, um, for your time. And I look forward to, um, to our next conversation. I wish you every success as you uh, take on the post of British Ambassador in South Sudan. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.